On the show today, I have Christina Leonovit. She is the CEO of Bluemark, a company that was born last year, sprouting from the impact investment consultancy Tideline. Now, Bluemark has a very specific focus, and that's to provide third-party verification of the impact investment practices and performance of the world's leading impact practitioners. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. There's a dizzying array of impact frameworks available today, and more seem to pop up every day. This is progress. But as impact investment pushes into the mainstream, we face the paradox of success. It's the challenge of maintaining impact with integrity and pushing back against impact washing. And this is where independent verification comes in. When the IFC launched the operating principles for impact management, they were well aware of this. And one of their nine principles is actually a requirement for investors to undergo third-party verification. And so far, the large bulk of the signatories to the impact principles have gone to Bluemark for their impact audit. And with this rich source of impact data, Christina and her team have aggregated the results and they've begun work on a benchmark for what the best impact investment methodologies look like and where there's area for improvement. But I'll let Christina tell you all about that. So let's get into it. You can find all the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you'd like to offer some words of encouragement, please leave me a review on iTunes, which will help more people find the show. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Christina Leonhoven. Here we go. Christina, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I'm eager to hear all about Bluemark. It's quite a new company. You're the CEO. But before Bluemark came Tideline, which is an impact investment consultancy, which uh, you founded along with Ben Thornley, someone who some of my listeners may remember from a previous episode. But for those who missed it, how did Bluemark come about and what was the genesis from Tideline? Sure. Well, first off, Tideline, Ben Thornley, and our third partner, Kim Wright-Bielich, and I launched in 2014 as a pure play consultancy in the impact investing market. And as such, we've been you know, engaged over the last seven plus years advising a broad range of institutional asset owners and asset managers on their impact investment strategies, systems, tools, everything they needed to kind of execute, develop and execute robust impact investment strategies with rigor and discipline. Bluemark, we had the sort of light bulb switch on in 2019 for what we would then launch as a separate business and call Bluemark. In April of 2019, the operating principles for impact management were launched as a new standard for the impact investing market. And the operating principles for impact management were important to us because they represented for the first time a consensus standard around which a lot of our clients, a tideline, but a lot of impact investors coalesced a standard for what constitutes disciplined management of impact in an investment context. But they also explicitly required 
independent verification. And we realized that verification writ large was going to become much more important need in the impact investing market as it continues to mainstream and scale and you know concerns abound around impact washing and and the integrity of the label. So Bluemark was launched January of 2020, a specialized provider of impact verification services. All right, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the operating principles for impact management launched by the IFC and just to help sort of people understand the breadth of this ecosystem. So the impact principles, they're not really an impact measurement framework as such, are they? Do you see them as a, as a sort of a higher level structure, you know, principles that interweave throughout an organization's impact management processes? How do you sort of define that? Yeah, it's a great question. And you've certainly got it right. The operating principles for impact management are not a measurement standard. They're what I, one would call a standard for impact management practice. And I think that really reflects an evolution in the impact investing industry's sort of focus over time. In the early days of impact investing, there was a lot of a lot of focus and discussion around measurement. You know that that was the primary bar by which you could evaluate whether or not something was truly an impact investment if they were measuring the impact results against which the impact intentions were formulated. But I think over time, well, number one, we, we all came to realize that measurement is really hard. It doesn't generally tell the full story. You know, investors really need to develop kind of robust processes for managing impact throughout the full investment life cycle. And the operating principles for impact management represent that more holistic framework for how an investor should think about integrating impact throughout each stage of the investment process from how they articulate their impact objectives all the way to how they conduct exits with a view to sustaining impact. And, and there's, there's lots of different parts then that are going to sort of hang off this, I don't want to use the term framework because that's overused, but this sort of broader philosophy. You've got the likes of Ginjaris Plus, right? A, a, a impact measurement framework. You've then got the impact management project, you know, a couple of names that I think people will understand. Those two fit within the operating principles for impact management, but can this system sort of manage, can it absorb you know, the many frameworks that we have that seemingly being launched every week, how does it sort of capture the many different, you know, methodologies that, that different investors are using? Yeah, I think a lot of folks are, are trying to sort of map the various set of standards and frameworks and taxonomies that exist to their primary uses and roles in the market. And I know that the impact management project itself is planning to put out one of those meta-level industry maps of some kind. So I'm anxiously awaiting it. But the operating principles for impact management do, in fact, draw on some of those key frameworks and taxonomies. And I, I think in particular, the operating principles drew quite heavily on the impact management project in terms of how impact was being defined, the five key dimensions of impact according to the impact management project. And Iris Plus is, you know, itself 
a sort of an, an accounting system or a you know metrics taxonomy and another one is called hipso and many people may be aware that actually iris plus and hipso which grew out of the development finance market have gone through this recent process of harmonizing and arriving at what they're calling the joint impact indicators by and large most signatories to the operating principles for impact management are in fact using either iris plus hipso or the joint impact indicators for their impact performance management but that's not actually directly prescribed by the operating principles for impact management itself now look that's great background i think for people trying to negotiate this constantly evolving ecosystem that's really useful and in the way you talked about the existence of the the need for the operating principles for impact management was this state of maturity this evolution of of the impact space and of course one of the principles, principle number nine, the last principle says that signatories must have their impact process independently verified. So that's where Blue Mark comes in. Uh, you know, you released the Making the Mark report last year, the results of your first batch of verifications, and then you followed that up with a benchmark report that covers the first 30 impact verifications. So can you tell us about this effort to set a benchmark which is obviously challenging with such diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we designed Bluemark's verification service in order to meet the requirement and the growing demand for impact assurance in the market, we had a few kind of core benefits in mind that we wanted to ensure we were imparting to the market and to our clients. And one of them is just that base level of kind of compliance and accountability, obviously, with the threshold level of standards. So evaluating the, the alignment to the principles at some threshold level is kind of point number one. But it was very important to us that Bluemark's verification service went well beyond what would be just viewed as a compliance activity or, or a sort of tick the box exercise, we wanted to ensure that our verification service was also identifying sort of the degree and extent of strength and alignment of an investor's system to the impact principles. And by doing so, we also wanted to ensure that there was some degree of comparability, you know, across investors. So in order to do that, we embedded in our verification methodology, sort of a proprietary scoring and approach, but based off a very consistently applied, structured kind of methodology for verification. And one that is, you know, obviously deeply grounded in the the letter and spirit of the impact principles. And so as we got to a greater critical mass of clients, we realized that there was a lot of value in having you know, applied that scoring methodology because it could be sort of aggregated up to provide a picture of what we consider a robust sample. It's obviously not a fully market representative sample at this point, but it's quite robust. And the benchmark, you know, allows one to look at how it looks against the impact principles, but also when we cut the set between sort of top quartile bottom quartile and sort of the everything in between, we were able to identify what we call practice leaders in the top quartile 
and practice learners in the bottom quartile, you know, those who have a lot more areas for improvement or gaps that need to be filled. Leaders and learners. That's, that's a great way to put it. Very diplomatic. Can you tell us about the characteristics of the impact investors verified? You know, I imagine that they're already kind of the best of the best in some ways because they've put their hand up to be signatories to the impact principles. Is it all private equity? Is it emerging markets focused? You know, are there some, some key characteristics about, about the groups captured? Well, one of the reasons we were excited about our sample and this latest Making the Mark report was because we felt our sample really was quite diversified. So it actually represents a fairly broad array of types of investors. So there's about 23% are development finance institutions, groups like the CDC in the UK or BEG in Germany, FinDev Canada in Canada, for example. Another 30% are what we call diversified asset management, more mainstream players, if you will, like UBS, for example, or KKR. And then uh, we have about 33% that represent impact only, kind of impact native, managers, and then sort of another 13% that represent different types of organizations. And by asset class, it is not all private equity, although the impact principles are written in a language that I think is most familiar to a private equity player. We actually have a number of investors in our sample that also manage public debt, fixed income, private debt, and even one or two with some public equity assets in the portfolio. There's a big delta there, isn't there, between the asset allocations of DFIs as opposed to listed equities. And and I'm constantly always asked this question, and, and we, we could talk for hours about it, but impact in listed equities, such an interesting issue, obviously complicated by the fact that these are big public companies operating on a secondary market, very difficult to, to have influence and also difficult to measure impact, which is central. How do you see that? Do you see there an evolution? Are you optimistic? Do you see it as genuine impact? Well, I think it's fair to say that it is quite difficult, as you just said, to have real measurable impact in a listed equities setting and quite difficult to align to the operating principles for impact management. There are limited cases, however, where I believe that an investor can have a direct and specific contribution to the achievement and impact to impact. Generally, the lever in a public or listed equities context is through shareholder engagement. So one thing's for sure, I think it has to be a very actively managed strategy. Beyond that, I think there has to be very, very clear definitions for what types of impact the manager is seeking. And there has to be very clear ongoing engagement around those issues, follow-up monitoring and measurement of progress against those issues in order to actually achieve impact. There will still be areas where I think it's almost impossible in a listed equities context to get a high score, for example, around impact at exit in liquid markets it's pretty hard to see how exits could be conducted in a way that really ensures sustainability of impact. But the shareholder engagement lever, I think, is the primary one for testing whether or not there's real contribution. Very good. 
Now, digging into the report a little more, for each of the principles, there was defined a number of practice indicators. And there were a few in there that were really interesting, and I'd love your your view on it. Principle two, there was an indicator aligning staff incentive systems with impact performance. And I think this is one that comes up quite a lot. You know, it seems quite far from current practice. Uh, Were there any sort of functional examples of this that that were really useful that, that you came across? Yeah, it's a tough one. I think by and large, those that we do see aligning staff incentive systems with impact performance are doing so through the process of kind of very explicit incorporation into performance evaluation frameworks and methods that then in turn influence compensation decisions. So in other words, you know, they'll have a really rigorous and consistent performance evaluation methodology, well-document that incorporates not just financial considerations, but impact. And that in turn will influence, you know, compensation. There's a much smaller share that are, I would say, experimenting with mechanisms like direct tying of bonuses to specific impact KPIs or direct tying of carried interest in a private equity context to impact KPIs. We really haven't seen much of that, the latter. It's much talked about, but I think quite difficult to do in a way that doesn't sometimes create distortions or potentially incentives to sort of game the system a bit. In some respects, I think the most robust practice that we've seen have been those that have a really thorough and comprehensive way of of evaluating investment team performance on impact and financial. And then principle four, there was an indicator. It talked about assessing each investment using all five dimensions of the impact management project, who, what, how much contribution and risk. And I would have thought that that would have been really broadly adopted, that those five dimensions would be really at the heart of a lot of the structures, but it got quite a low score. I guess I also felt that there wasn't an option to use some, you know, one, two, three, that you sort of had to use all five dimensions. How did you see different groups, yeah, using the IMP system? Yeah, I think it is that indicator is really asking that question whether there's all five IMP dimensions are being used at once, not whether some subset of them, almost almost all of our clients are drawing on the impact management project's five dimensions in the way they're evaluating ex-ante impact. But I think where, you know, a lot of investors kind of stop a bit short is on both the contribution and, and risk side, particularly the risk side of the equation, we find quite a lot of investors who are kind of doing the basic sort of who, what, how much, but the contribution and risk, I think, is not always systematically being evaluated for each investment. Yeah. Okay. And following on from that then, were there any any big gaps that surprised you? You know, these are the world's leading practitioners, really. I imagine you had a high standard for them. So was there anything that you assumed, you know, would have been there, but you were surprised to see it wasn't? Well, I think one that is a big issue for the field, and I think may not be surprising for, you know, real insiders, but for those kind of 
looking into the market, one of the features we do look at is the extent to which investors are soliciting input from various stakeholders in the ultimate impact of the investment. Um, those might be local beneficiaries or members of the community, or they could be workers in the enterprise. And very few investors have a concrete or robust way put in place to solicit input on a regular basis from stakeholders. And that I think is quite surprising and a big area for improvement in the, the market as a whole. And, you know, I think we have some new tools for that. 60 decibels is certainly one group that is providing some solutions for that problem, but we have yet to see a very large number of investors adopt that as a practice. I'd love to sort of zoom out a little bit now. The benchmarking report sort of offers such valuable insights, but also I have a lot of audience members who really want to engage with impact, but they're daunted by the gravity of it all. And all of these acronyms we've been rolling out so far, there's so many of them and more, more day by day. Is there a best practice impact management system that you would advise to, you know, a fund manager that was, that was very green, very fresh, came to you and said, we want to get into it? You know, is there sort of one, two, three, four pieces that, that you would recommend? You know, I start by saying, I think, you know, an asset manager that is truly committed to impact will hold themselves up to two levels of accountability for impact. One is accountability for their practice. You know, what sorts of processes, actions, capabilities are they putting in place in order to achieve the intended stated impact? And the other is performance. You know, what kinds of results are they gathering? What data are they collecting to report out on the achievement of the intended impact? So practice and performance is the way I like to think about sort of two pillars of accountability for impact. And I think any investor, any investment manager coming to this market needs to think about putting in place the building blocks for both. And I mean, on the practice side, no surprise, I think the first thing an investor should do is really internalize and adopt the operating principles for impact management and build a system that partially aligns to it, if not fully. You know, there are certain stretch requirements in that standard. And when it comes to performance reporting, I think committing to providing a clear and complete picture of their impact thesis backed up with relevant data drawn from industry standards like IRIS Plus or HIPTO and aligned to the sustainable development goals, I think is, you know, the beginnings of best practice. I think we have a lot to say on what constitutes quality impact performance reporting um, but perhaps that's a topic for another podcast. But I think there are a lot of the basic frameworks out there in the market to draw on to to um, to do a robust job of providing a complete quality performance report. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think that's a broader view of it that recognizes the evolution that we've moved simply from impact measurement to 
this concept of practice and performance. I think that's very neat. But there is this concept, it keeps coming to my mind, and I wonder if, if you'd help me sort of think through whether it's appropriate. In the world of software, they often talk about a tech stack. Lots of different applications that all work together, layers of applications. Would you think of defining an impact stack? Would that be, be the right way to think it through? You know, you could have the impact principles at the top, different methodologies through there. And as you said, IMP are coming out with a taxonomy, a map, which will be really useful. Could these frameworks work better together? Could they, would they benefit from thinking in an API type methodology that helps them to interlink like Lego? Yeah. Have you thought about it in, in that sort of way? Yes. And I wish I was smart enough to solve this problem myself or articulate exactly what all of these various standard setters should do to ensure harmony and interoperability. I think interoperability is the word of the day in the impact standard setting market. And there is effort underway. I think we're seeing some encouraging movement there. I mentioned earlier the work to harmonize Iris Plus and HIPSO into a single set of joint impact indicators in the world of ESG, you know, the work of GRI and SASB and other standard setters come together and harmonize their frameworks is also extremely helpful. On the practice side, I think, I do think about impact management practice as frankly foundational to everything. So as we think about a stack, if an investor can put in place the basic building blocks of a a disciplined and robust impact management system and practice aligned to the operating principles, but also probably drawing on, you know, we haven't talked about SDG impact as another practice standard that's coming to market, but there are some nice complementary features of SDG impact to the open that I think fill in some of the blanks. But with that foundation, I think the performance piece follows. There's sort of a natural sequence, I think. And with the robust practice in place, the performance will follow and the reporting thereof. Well, thank you for that. I think after my very long-winded question, you summed it up in one word, interoperability. And I think, yeah, if people take away nothing else today, that's a really useful one that is a challenge and, and, and many people are working on it. So yeah, let's be optimistic that we'll get there. And now coming back to your work, timeline blue mark um you've been so close to this stuff and and i think that that's clear in your in your answers and your depth of understanding of it all but i wonder you know how you got here my guests often find their way by very different routes and that's partly the most interesting part of the conversations i have here is that it's not the common route that you know most people find their way to finance and that sort of thing so but you started out at the world bank you seem to have come more from the humanities and, and the development world can you tell us about that when did you first discover impact investing you know when i first started my career like anyone was naively idealistic and really wanted to help save the world in some way and i thought that the international development industry was the way the, the most logical path to take i had had some unusual experiences in grad school living in Central Asia before the breakup of the former Soviet Union. And so I sort of stumbled into a World Bank role that was frankly far beyond my my credentials or experience level. But 
had a phenomenal experience there in many ways, but also got quite disillusioned with the world of international aid. And at that point, the Washington consensus view of the world of how to transform lesser developed economies into market-driven economies. It all felt quite fraught after a few years of being there. And I, I really wanted to move into the private sector and just through an economics degree, I really stumbled into onto Wall Street on a kind of non-traditional path. So I wasn't sort of running through the investment banking analyst or associate training program. I joined initially as an economist and then started advising sovereign clients for JP Morgan and began to run kind of emerging markets and sovereign risk function. And long story short, I had a career in risk management at JP Morgan for a number of years that was quite stimulating and fulfilling, but I could have 10 years in realized I'd lost the initial thread and purpose and really wanted to find my way back into a purpose-driven career. And so I took a leave of absence. And at that point, I was already engaged in the microfinance movement, other elements of what would then become impact investing, but I kind of discovered the field of social entrepreneurship. I did some work with Ashoka, you know, a large fellowship and network of social entrepreneurs around the world. And for me, that just changed everything. I never wanted to go back to mainstream finance and risk. For me, it was the future. And I I was um, lucky enough at the time to have some political capital at JP Morgan. And I pitched the creation of a social finance business in the investment bank, which was, you know, pretty early days. It was 2007. So the term impact investing was perhaps not yet fully coined. And I was able to gain a a bit of a front row seat to the early days of building the impact investing market. And from the luxury of a platform like JP Morgan's had some resources to, to bring to that effort. And that set me on this path. And I've never looked back. I I feel that it is, there are a lot of risks. (laughs) There are days I lose faith sometimes, but I think that this is the future. And I'm very encouraged by how quickly and dramatically the field is growing. Oh, look, thank you for that overview. I think there's so much there, you know, that a lifetime there, that's that's a career. and, And there are so many elements I'm keen to dig into. But rolling right back to the start, you did talk about this naivete of international development. And I think that's what, you know, many people feel. I certainly was there myself um, and, and seeing it as this amazing, adventurous lifestyle. And when you do crack into it, you realize, you know, in some ways it's another sort of public service role and then and, and there are still layers of bureaucracy despite, you know, the opportunity to have great impact and work with really smart people. But you, you very coy stumbled into a role at the World Bank and that it was above your, your pay grade. But can you tell us about that? You know, I think nowadays it's so competitive and people find it, you know, very difficult to even get an internship. So how did you find yourself getting sort of a, a senior role at the World Bank? Tell us about that. It was absolutely directly and singularly related to the fact that I had been spending a number of months in Kazakhstan and that itself was a complete fluke, really. A, a professor of mine, an economist, had gone over there to advise President Nazarbayev, who's still president of that country, on the, you know, the economic reform and transition plan. 
and was setting up an economic reform committee and said, would you like to come and just help essentially be like the assistant to the economic reform committee? And I literally had to pull an atlas off the shelf and figure out where Kazakhstan was on the map. But I, you know, it was that adventure that ultimately when I came back led me to the World Bank because subsequent to my time there, the Soviet Union fell apart, broke up and Kazakhstan became an independent country as did all of the other former republics of the Soviet Union. And the World Bank was frankly just scrambling as was the International Monetary Fund to pull together teams of people who knew about that part of the world. And so I, you know, I had a lot of contacts there. And so it really was luck and coincidence, but it was also perhaps just the fact that I was willing to sort of take the plunge and go off on an adventure like that, that actually allowed me to, to get that opportunity at the World Bank. So I guess there's a lesson in there. That's exactly it. You know, I have uh, a lot of listeners who are who are young finance students who are really intrigued about finding different career pathways. And, and I think that's a really simple lesson. You sort of said it was, oh, you know, I just sort of fell into it. But, you know, there was a big decision to make there, right? I assume you're in your early 20s and you were heading off to Kazakhstan. You wouldn't have had the internet. You wouldn't have had the understanding of these countries that we do today. And so that would have been a really daunting move. That would have been, you know, plunging into the deep end. If you were giving advice to young people today, is there anything that you would see that you can see people are sort of hesitant to crack out of? Is there anything in particular you would point to today that are opportunities people could take that would get them ahead? I do think that young people today are much more critical thinkers than I was. I am constantly impressed with the younger generation's willingness to question the current systems, societal systems and economic systems within which we we live. So I just want to encourage that, frankly. I want to encourage that trend and I want young folks to continue to use their voices and be audacious in, in what they consider to be necessary for a more equitable and just world. Because I think the reason, for example, that I was even allowed to launch that social finance effort at JP Morgan was that there were a lot of young bankers and graduates, new recruits who had already been sounding a drumbeat for something like that. And I didn't even really fully realize I was tapping into that until, until we launched it. So that's not a lot of wisdom to give. I have a lot of, I guess, admiration for the, the younger generation. Yeah, no, no, I really appreciate that. Um, and I think we can look back at the earlier days of the World Bank um, when the Soviet Union was crumbling and there were obviously lots of opportunities there that you took hold of to be part of it, to jump on board and shape really this sort of forming new globalised world. Now today, 2021, we're sort of at the other end of that. The world is grappling with globalisation and will it expand, will it recede? And I think in some ways the World Bank may have lost some influence but certainly impact investing and, and this concept of allocating capital to drive sustainable development is a really new and exciting opportunity. Is that how you see it? Would you, would you almost see this space that you're operating in? You're, you know, you're building a new business, you're creating new jobs. Is that almost a, a similar opportunity to the, the one you fell into at the World Bank? 
Oh, totally. I mean, the reason I continue to be so excited about impact investing and sustainable investing is because I think it represents a much more powerful tool for kind of writing some of the ills of our world. And, you know, if we can harness, you know, the vast amount of resources in our private capital markets, we will many times over, you know, swamp the resources of international aid agencies and development organizations and charities and anything is possible. You know, we can do it right do it with integrity. And Bluemark's mission is really to help continue to scale the impact investing market, but not for scale's sake alone, scale on the back of integrity and accountability for impact. Oh, very good. Great way to wrap it up. I'm sort of tempted to channel Tim Ferriss here and talk to you for another couple of hours about about how you, you know, dealt with the, the challenges of your career in the many stages, but maybe we'll have to leave that for another time. Before I let you go, I'd love to get a book recommendation. Gives us a good insight into what you're reading. Doesn't have to be based on the world of financial development. Can just be something on your side table. Is there anything you could recommend? Yeah, well, it is actually something that has been recommended to me by a number of my colleagues at Tideline. And I'm currently reading it. It's called The Overstory. It's by a man named Richard Powers. So it's a novel about five trees. And the sort of experiences of people that lived only some small segment of the life of these trees. And it's very absorbing, quite heartbreaking at the same time. But for anybody interested, I think in sustainability, it's a good read. Well, look, Christina, I've asked a lot of people this question. I've asked every guest this question. And this is the first time that that I'm actually reading that myself right now I'm sort of halfway through it yeah I'm really you know I can really share your enthusiasm for it I normally have a big stack of non-fiction books but I wanted a fiction story and asked a friend come on give me a tip and he said oh you're gonna love the overstory it actually won the Pulitzer Prize last year and yeah it blew me away I mean the first story about American chestnut trees because it's sort of little vignettes of stories, right? And there are certain overlaps, but a lot of them are, are independent. And, and that just grabbed my attention. I didn't know the history of, of chestnut trees in the US, of how they were the, the perfect lumber and the nature of, you know, one guy, and I think it was Iowa or somewhere in the rural heartland had taken a chestnut tree and grown it. And then when the, the rest of the country's chestnuts had all succumbed to a fungus or something, his remained and the family, it was, it was part of the family. Anyway. Yeah, it's pretty captivating. Yeah, you're right. It does get dark. It's, it's quite interesting. And just that contrast between the fleeting nature of a human life and the depth of how long trees last for and their, their, their patience and, you know, the way that they communicate, the sadness of sort of industrial forestry, beauty of, of old growth forests and, yeah, lots of layers there. So thank you for that. Great recommendation. Sure. Well, look, that's a good note to leave it on. Thank you for all of your insights. Lots of depth there. And hopefully, uh, Blue Mike will, will keep releasing these reports. They're really great. So thank you. Well, thanks so much, John. We appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank you, Christina. All the best. Thank you.